Coming up right now, though, I'd like to welcome uh, to the stage uh, our panelists for uh, a discussion of a very important uh, Supreme Court case, which was just argued, uh, Carpenter versus United States, which uh, both tackles the specific question of uh, whether uh, government agents need a Fourth Amendment warrant to access your cell phone location records, but uh, the broader question of whether data about you held by a third party uh, under a, a now a decades-old precedent um, is generally accessible without a warrant to law enforcement, uh, which as technology makes that more common means that under current precedent, more and more of our data is falling outside the protections of the Fourth Amendment. Um, to uh, lead that discussion, we're very pleased to have uh, a senior editor, uh, Damon Root of Reason Magazine, where I... Uh, in my former life uh, as a journalist, got my start. Uh, I mean, a contributing editor there, uh, which as the old joke says means you uh, neither edit nor contribute. Um, Damon is uh, uh, an award-winning legal journalist and also the author of uh, the uh, highly praised uh, Overruled, the uh, battle for uh, the Supreme Court. And I cannot think of anyone better to uh, lead the discussion of this vital case for our privacy and liberties. Uh, Damon, would you? Uh, to bring the panel to the stage. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you, Julian, for that uh, warm introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here at the Cato Institute this morning um, and to be uh, moderating this panel, Carpenter versus United States and the Future of the Third Party Doctrine. Um, let me just say uh, at the outset that uh, we're, we're going to be dispelling with your normal. Um, each panelist has five, ten minutes, and then um, questions at the end. We're going to kind of go right into a discussion. So what I'm going to do is just introduce the panel. Um, and then just say one or two very brief things about the case and then kind of go right into it. Um, so let me begin with here at the, my right at the end, uh, Dan Schweitzer is a Supreme Court Director and Chief Counsel for the National Association of Attorneys General. Uh, next to me here, Michelle Richardson, Deputy Director of the Freedom, Security, and Technology Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, here on my left, uh, Jake LaPeruque, Senior Counsel at the Constitution Project and then at the end, we have Jim Harper, Vice President of the Competitive Enterprise Institute and formerly a senior fellow up here at the Cato Institute. So uh, just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Carpenter versus United States. Uh, this is a case with a lot of potential to reshape the future of Fourth Amendment law. It originates 2010, a series of, of, of armed robberies in the Detroit, Michigan area, metro area, but also in a neighboring state. Um, the authorities acquire, without a search warrant, 127 days worth of cell site location, historic cell site location information about the suspect, Mr. Carpenter. Uh, using this information, the authorities are able to trace back his whereabouts and place him in the vicinity of some of these uh, crimes that he's alleged to have committed. That information is, is used against him uh, in court. And so the question is, is this something that triggers the Fourth Amendment? Uh, should, the, should the authorities need a search warrant to get this sort of information? Um, so just to kind of kick off the conversation, I thought I'd start with Michelle and just ask, could you just um, kind of talk to us about the state of the technology at issue here? I mean, it's, uh, it's CSLI. What is that? What are the authorities getting? What are they using it for? What, is it, what can it tell them about, about someone? Sure. So CSLI is the cell site location information. And it is what your cell phone provider gets when your phone pings off of towers that are used to actually route your phone calls and text messages. Um, 
Different providers have different rules about how long they keep the information, but some keep it for many years. And over time, it's become much more granular. I think you look at the arguments of where Carpenter was in 2010 or 2011, um, the information was much more general, but every year this information gets much more specific on our phones as the towers get closer and closer, right? And you sort of zero in on someone's exact location. Um, so the government is now getting them with court orders, but on a relevant standard through a subpoena. So they are going through the process of actually filing something with a court. And um, my understanding is also that what happens is when you get the dump, you actually have to run it through software. So you can actually get the real world location, um, which is something that often local law enforcement has to work with the feds on, because this is not something they actually use um, in every single case. There are lots of other methods that they use to investigate crimes. Uh, Dan, let me go to you. Uh, should the government be required to get a search warrant for this, this kind of information? Well, I guess that's the, uh, the $64,000 question. I guess. Uh, I'm here sort of as the government representative. Let me uh, sort of give um, a general take on why uh, we think the answer is yes. Or no, they should not have to get a search warrant. <laughs> okay. That's always the danger of those yes, no questions. Is, uh, um, so let me start with the third party doctrine. And that's something of the boogeyman here. This notion that, well, if you voluntarily give someone else some information, then therefore you have no privacy rights to it, the government can get it. And there's a sense that, boy, that can lead to some extreme instances of government getting information that it probably shouldn't get. Um, another way of looking at this is that what the case is about is the government's use of um, a time-honored, um, centuries-old method of getting evidence, which is getting testimony from witnesses and using subpoenas uh, to get third-party testimony. And sometimes the way I describe it is if I buy something with a credit card in a store, the cashier is a witness to that. And if that's related to a crime, the government can call that cashier to testify about what he or she saw. So let's say the store actually keeps records of the purchases. And so I've made many purchases. And it's easier, better than calling the cashier is we could ask the store to give us your business records. Similar to the cashier, it's, again, time honored. You could send a subpoena. Uh, to the store and get the records of my purchases, and the store essentially is acting as a witness. And based on that essential reasoning, uh, it, is a, it is a standard method by which um, uh, law enforcement investigates all forms of crimes, um, all sorts of white collar, banking, drugs, and the like, is to get bank records, uh, credit card records, um, the phone numbers that one has dialed through old-fashioned phones. Um, and the law is you know, well, quite well established on this. Um, this dates back, there are Supreme Court cases from a 1906 case saying, uh, citing back to an 1834 case, saying that it would be utterly impossible to carry on the administration of justice without the writ, the writ that allows you to do the subpoena. And um, so the real question, and generally, in terms of how the Fourth Amendment applies to them, the, the Supreme Court has generally viewed it as something of a hybrid. It accepts that the Fourth Amendment bears on it, but it's viewed it as something of a constructive search. The government isn't going into anyone's private area and, and uh, rummaging around for the information. They are asking you to get it to testify essentially as a witness. So there are some limits. Uh, there are some limits on burdensomeness, on relevance, on the government having the authority. But beyond that, the government is generally viewed as being permitted to do that. Uh, the question we face here is what are the limits? And there are some existing limits, and the question is, should we sort of 
draw a new line here, distinguishing the cell site records from the banking records, the credit card information, the phone numbers that we know you could get from the Smith against Maryland case. Um, Jim, same question to you. Should the government be required to get a search warrant uh, for this information? Yes. I, I was very, really careful to, yeah. to get my yes, no right. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe they should. And, um, the, the witness metaphor is interesting, but I, but I think it probably proves too much. Uh, we're surrounded by digital witnesses all the time, so we really wouldn't have much, uh, uh, much privacy left uh, if you adopted it. The, but the real reason is because, uh, for, for my thinking, is that the, the witness I carry in my pocket uh, communicates with a cell phone provider that is committed in contract uh, to keep that information uh, private. Um, and not private as such, but is committed not to share that information with others uh, except for in a limited number of circumstances. You look at terms of service, you look at privacy policies, and, and those actually, the people complain about them all the time, but those actually provide uh, uh, the rules by which uh, uh, telecom providers can use that information. Think of, thinking of that in terms of property as allocating property rights in that information, the information is mostly mine. Most rights uh, to, to use that information, to process it, to share it, remain with me according to that contract. So it's something of mine. I think it's pretty clear uh, in the thinking of people and of courts that digital materials are papers for constitutional purposes. So we're in the zone of the Fourth Amendment when a statute such as the Stored Communications Act requires telecom providers to turn that over. That's a seizure. When the information is then processed, that's a search of the information. So we're within the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and the question becomes, is it reasonable to seize and search? Well, the, the, the Fourth strongly suggests, and the court's case law uh, also suggests, that a warrant is what is reasonable to do in that, in that situation, absent exigency or other narrow circumstances. So that's the sort of textual, literal, and technically uh, precise way of thinking about this case. And yes, you should have to get a warrant in order to get that information. Uh, in the third party doctrine cases, the, the court has said that you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in information that you disclose, share with third parties. So in, um, in one of the cases, Miller, that's bank records. And in um, Smith versus Maryland, that's numbers you dial in a telephone. And during the oral arguments a couple weeks ago, I heard several of the justices really grappling with this question of how, does, how, how could Mr. Carpenter win this case uh, with these precedents on the book? So, Jake, let me just ask you, I mean, is, are, are the, how, how, how can he win with those precedents? Can they be distinguished? What, what, what does that, what, I mean, what does that mean for, this, for the outcome of this case? Well, I think we... Um are coming to grapple with the fact that, you know, I mean, while there might be some place and some circumstances the third party doctrine for the reasons that Dan eloquently laid out that sometimes you have to be able to call witnesses to demand records that we're, we're far beyond in our age in terms of what type of data can be sucked up by third parties and how much we rely on them. Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said in this case during arguments, you know, cell phones should not be treated as some sort of voluntary choice of, yeah, I want the cell phone, I'm agreeing to give up my privacy to all my location all the time because that's how much I want the cell phone. Cell phones are a necessity of life. And by nature, they suck up all your location data. And um, I think the court and society at large, thinking about their reasonable expectations of privacy, says that in our modern day and age where so much of our personal information is digital, is held by third parties, whether it be 
in the cloud or in certain types of storage that there's there's got to be some line that's drawn where the third party doctrine is trumped by how sensitive this information that's necessarily held by them is. Um, there was one exchange between the government's um, advocate and uh, I believe Justice Sotomayor where um, the justice said, well, you know, third party doctrine, emails are held by a third party. We wouldn't say that you could just take emails without a warrant. And um, uh, the government's advocate conceded, yeah, we wouldn't do that. That's, that's a bridge too far. The privacy concerns are too great. I think the same case, the same sort of rationale will guide them when it comes to location data. Sure, it's held by a third party, but this is just, it's held by a third party because that's how modern society works. You, you have to have a cell phone if you want to live in modern society. Cell phones have to gather location data to work. And, you know, what doctor you go to, whether you go to a political rally, whether you go to a union hall meeting, a uh, political protest, a uh, church or a mosque, these types of things are just too sensitive for the government to have access to at a relatively low standard. They are so sensitive that they necessitate the same type of um, checks of probable cause that a war and a warrant that we should have for communications content. You, uh, you, you brought up a number of concepts there, I think all of which you know, we want to get into. Uh, this idea of voluntariness, um, which, is in, which is in the court's language. Um, also, the, the notion of a reasonable expectation of privacy. So um, maybe, Michelle, if I just put it to you, um, you know, how, do those, how do those concepts bear on, bear on this case? Um, is, 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 in your view, is one of them a, a way forward for Mr. Carpenter to win? Um, well, the reasonable expectation of privacy has both the objective and subjective components to it. And there is a debate about whether the fact that we know records are generally compiled about us through all of our different services, that means we've then waived our rights basically to privacy. We've opted into using them. And it really is based on an outdated idea of the role of technology. And 40 years ago, there was just no way to foresee how it would be so ingrained into our lives um, and the value we would get from these devices and how important they are um, to education, to work, to healthcare. You know, I think people sometimes try to frame phones and other things as gadgets that are just for fun, but that's just not how they work anymore. Um, and to use them to their full potential, you need to be able to expect that the information will remain secure and private. Um, a lot of work is done by this idea that because you share it with that third party, you've destroyed any expectation of privacy. Um, but the analogy of the person speaking themselves in a testimonial capacity of what they saw with their own eyes is very different. Here you are contracting with someone to process your information for a very specific purpose. You have the understanding that the presumption lies in favor of privacy. Um, and we've come to this just ridiculous situation now where the third party doctrine has totally trumped any reasonable court review about whether any specific category is sensitive. So that's one way the court could move forward. They could say, um, instead of just flat out saying all third party records, um, are unprotected by a warrant. We will instead look and evaluate each category, right? Um, we now have so many more through new technologies that we need to make an informed decision that's actually based on the facts of these specific cases. Um, and this is where 
we're happy to see them start with location. It's something that's particularly sensitive. It's something that people feel very strongly about. They have a very visceral reaction. They get what it means to have someone know where you are every minute of every day, and in Mr. Carpenter's case, for four months, right? It's a little less um, intangible than something like internet records. Those sorts of things are still not sinking in with people. Dan, can, let me ask you about the, <clears throat> the, the issue of, of voluntariness. A, few, a couple years ago, the Supreme Court decided a case, Riley versus California, which had to do with uh, the warrantless search of a cell phone incident to arrest. And in, and in the Chief Justice's discussion of, of the cell phone in that case and the role that the cell phone plays in, in our lives, he, he had something like, you know, if someone came down from Mars, they would think it was sort of part of human anatomy. It's just it's indispensable to, to living in the modern world. I mean, that, that sounds like it's not voluntary, that the, you know, under the third party doctrine, um, we're voluntarily, the idea is that we, we're voluntarily using cell phones and sharing that information with the, with the cell phone provider and that the government can then get that information without a warrant. But d does Riley suggest that maybe uh, the voluntary prong is, is, is gone from, from this? One answer to give, which is one that the lawyer for the government gave during the argument is that one might say that, let's face it, we all know that we're, we're, using our, we're voluntarily using our cell phones, but it is something we all use. It's an ordinary, it's so commonplace, uh, we can't live without it. But was that any different from using credit cards, um, using banks, using telephones, you know, the old-fashioned landline telephones that were uh, uh, what were at issue in the Smith against Maryland case. So I'm not sure that the voluntariness concept really is why cell site records should be different. Um, it's, it's not clear to me that it's, more, that it's less voluntary than um, what the court has said. You don't have an expectation of privacy in the prior cases. Um, what, what I think maybe it's worth noting is, so there were a couple of interesting colloquies uh, during, the, uh, during the Carpenter argument. One by Alito, uh, the question by Justice Alito, one by Justice Breyer, and I think they have very different perspectives on the case. But the questions really went to the same place, which was the, AC, uh, the ACLU is not asking the court to overrule the prior precedents, not asking to overrule Smith against Maryland and, uh, and the other cases. Um, at the same time, Justice Breyer said, this seems too much for me. You shouldn't be able to get this. So how do I sit, rule for you, rule for Mr. Carpenter, but not overturn all the past precedents and suddenly change how law enforcement operates throughout the country and what they've been doing? And in a sense, I think that's the challenge in the case. And it's possible someone could write an opinion saying, well, the difference is that this is less voluntary than the others. I suspect they'll end up just saying that the information that is found is just more invasive in some manner than the other information. Though again, Justice Alito was pressing against that. Boy, you get a lot of personal information with credit card. You get the specific purchases, you get the dates. You, that's how you find out if someone might have purchased you know, pornography or something very private, uh, a hotel room. You don't find that out with the cell site date information at least circa 2010. But anyway, I think that's sort of the battleground that, or at least the place where they might draw the line as opposed to voluntariness. I, I was thinking about Alito's questions and thinking about Miller because, uh, you know, that case is 1976. Um, a lot of people use cash. You know, banking obviously had a lot of detailed records then, but people use cash. Nowadays, lots of people won't use cash. I could walk around and buy everything with a debit card. And that seems like pretty sensitive, you know. Uh, you know it, it seems comparable maybe to some of this information. So it's, I think distinguishing those cases is, is, is difficult and is the trick. Um, 
One, let me kind of, maybe I'll just start throwing these questions out to the whole panel and anyone who wants to answer, jump in. Um, one, of the, one of the issues in, in, in these cases um, is that the government has said, or the Supreme Court has said that the content of your communications is protected. So if I write a letter and I put it in the envelope and I seal the envelope, um, the government would need a search warrant to get inside the envelope, but what's on the outside of the envelope, the address, the sort of routing information from point A to point B, that's, that's public. I've shared that with third parties. Um, and that's, that's, that's a very old idea in our law. Um, but when we're talking about emails or even telephone calls, um, we're, we're sort of voluntarily sharing that information. The content of an email, the content of your telephone call, that is, that's not sealed in an envelope in the same way the old letter was. Um, so d does that distinction still make sense in light of technology? I see Jim is smiling. He wants to. Have, I yeah. do have thoughts on that. And the uh, uh, analogizing from the mail is, is a good thing to do if you do it right. Uh, the, the Congress statutorily protected mail fairly quickly after the founding because they had used the mails in order to communicate with one another uh, during the American Revolution. So they recognized the, the uh, keen interest people have in, in the contents of, the, of their mail. Uh, in 1877, if my, if my memory serves, Ex parte Jackson was the case that ratified constitutional protection for the mail. And Ex parte Jackson was very specific, surprisingly specific, about the fact that protection pertains uh, to the information that's, that's found within the envelope, sealed up, and it doesn't pertain to, to information on the exterior and about the mail. So the, the outward appearance and weight of a piece of mail is not constitutionally protected, but the material on the inside is. Uh, that's been the foundation of, of what people call a content-non-content -content distinction. But I think the distinction is actually between what is perceptible and what is imperceptible. Uh, and that that's actually ends up making a lot of difference. Content, content uh, is, I think everyone agrees, should be protected. Uh, Non-content, though, ends up being quite revealing. And this is an example. Cell site location information, uh, people have talked many times, including here, about the sensitive information it can reveal and the way it can be used. So wait a second. Maybe that distinction isn't, isn't the right one. It's actually not the w one that was drawn in Ex parte Jackson. Uh, if you can see it, if a law enforcement officer can see it, well, then that's in plain view. Uh, it took, a, it took a, a century and a half for the court to come up with the plain view doctrine. But if they can't see it, that to me is plain concealment. It takes either a seizure or a search, and often both, to get access to that information if it's if it's concealed in its original form. Instead of writing on paper nowadays, we convert uh, our speech and our, our writing photographs into a digital format, and it travels uh, along wires and, and fiber optic networks, uh, invisible and inaudible to anyone, private citizen and law enforcement included. Most often, getting access to it requires a seizure of the data and then a search of it to, to understand its meaning. So I think that uh, that, that, non that content, non-content distinction is appealing and it's familiar, but it's actually not the right one. It's perceptible versus imperceptible. Inside of an envelope is like uh, on the wire in digital format. You can't see it. It takes a search or seizure to get it. We're in the Fourth Amendment. We have that question about whether the search or seizure is, re is reasonable. Certainly the logic of the third-party doctrine 
would lead to the government being able to get the content, right? Because the logic is if, you, you know, if you've turned it over to a third party, then you have no expectation of privacy in it. And uh, my understanding is that you know, Google, Apple, whomever, they have access to the content of our emails. And uh, I think actually they run pro sophisticated programs in them to figure out what ads to send us. So um, the logic of the doctrine goes there. But the government has understandably said, we're not going there. And we're not asking. And we accept that it would be a Fourth Amendment, that it would be a search if uh, we tried to get the content. So then the question is, well, once you've sort of opened the, you know, sort of opened the, the, the floodgates there and said, well, maybe the third party doctrine doesn't extend to everything it can logically extend to, then the question is where you draw the line. And then that leads, and that'll be the last thing I say for the moment on this, is to a certain extent, it becomes an institutional question of should the court be drawing the line between these different pieces of information and saying, well, I think 127 days of cell site information that sort of gave a few blocks radius of where the person is, is more invasive than the credit card information, or should Congress do it? And I think to a certain extent that also is a big part of the government's pitch in this case is that there are serious privacy concerns, but they're for Congress to deal with. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Both uh, Justice Kennedy and Justice Alito made that point in oral argument that you're asking us to draw a, a bright line in a very difficult area, and shouldn't Congress be the body that does that? Does, does anyone else on the panel have thoughts on uh, whether the court should be deferring to, to, Congress's, to, to what Congress has said so far on this? Well, the court definitely can make the constitutional determination, right? That is their job. I know a lot of the criticism of this is that it just won't be administrable, it'll be many years, but that has happened in other constitutional contexts, right? Um, one of my favorite examples is the curtilage around your house, right? Uh, courts have been debating exactly what is protected by a warrant for a century. Is it your carport? Is it the garage? Is it your porch? Is it the six inches outside of your house? And the courts eventually came up with sort of a test of you know, have you tried to hide the area? What is it used for? And then courts make that decision, right? Um, so you could move forward in that way. Um, but also, you know, if an opinion comes back in this case that requires a warrant, but is based on a bunch of different legal theories that might inspire Congress to act on this, um, it might even encourage law enforcement to have buy-in into a process to create brighter lines. Um, but we all know how hard it is to get Congress to do anything, especially something that is this controversial. So it certainly cannot wait for this question to be answered by Congress alone. And, and for you, another reason why I would hope Congress does jump into this debate, regardless of how effective of a, a line the Supreme Court can draw, is that th there's going to be new means of doing this that inevitably get around um, this ruling. So I mean, for example, we, we talked about the fact that the location tracking at issue occurred in 2010. That was two years before the Supreme Court's landmark, groundbreaking, incredible privacy ruling in US v. Jones, which prohibited location tracking via attachment of a GPS device to a vehicle. So two years before that groundbreaking ruling, law enforcement had already moved on to a newer, better technology that was far more invasive, involved not touching someone's car or their person at all, and I would track them around even when they're outside of their car. I expect that even if we get an incredibly pro-privacy ruling um, in Carpenter, that the government's going to try to move on to other technologies where we focused a lot on the third-party doctrine that don't implicate the third-party doctrine at all. Um, 
Representative Liu spent a lot of time talking about facial recognition. As a lot of great recent reporting has indicated, facial recognition is rapidly becoming an incredibly powerful means for location tracking. And it doesn't need to involve third parties at all. The government can set up its own CCTV cameras or use as our ever-increasing body cameras or other cameras that they own and track individuals with rapid speed and that technology, no third parties implicated, no attachment of devices or anything implicated. What do we do about that? Are we going to have another case where we have to wait years and years and years after uh, the Supreme Court has ostensibly again uh, issued a warrant for location privacy uh, ruling before we have to deal with that? I would hope Congress, when they, to whatever good they need to, try to fix the edges on uh, cell site tracking, also say, okay, what about things like tracking by facial recognition, tracking from automated license plate readers, tracking from aerial surveillance, these type of things that don't indicate uh, a trespass like they did in Jones and don't indicate the third party doctrine like they did in Carpenter. Just briefly, I'd like to identify a third actor for, for drawing lines that a lot of people don't think about. Uh, when the court tries to draw lines, I always feel kind of embarrassed because here are nine wonderful people who are, are going to pretend to know what society thinks in terms of privacy, where both privacy norms and technology are changing. They can't, they can't do it. Um, Congress, it would be great if Congress stepped up for once and did the right thing, uh, but that only happens rarely, and, and it doesn't seem to stick all that well when it, when it does. Uh, we actually draw the lines in contract. Uh, contract is not is not the most seamless process either, but if you look if you look at the terms of service and privacy policies, those are part of a big broad negotiation about what should happen what should happen with this information. And like I said before, a lot of it remains ours. That is uh, our digital property. And if you think contracts don't work, I, I, I'd cite you to a really interesting thing that happened a few years ago. I think an AT and T, if I if I recall it correctly, an AT and T lawyer cut and pasted from the wrong. Uh, uh, from the wrong document, and included a, a provision uh, in their in their uh, public contract saying that all the material traveling over the network was their copyright. Like you were signing over a copyright to the material that, that traversed AT&T's network. Well, somebody found it, and they were like, that's ridiculous. And before it could be even newsworthy, AT&T took it back out. That's, a, that's how contract negotiation works there, is that they're looking down the horizon, what's going to get us in trouble, what our consumer is going to accept, and that's, that's how that broad negotiation is happening. That's the line drawing that the court could apply if it uses a sort of a, 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 a discrete, textual approach to the Fourth Amendment, where it says, is this, what are, what's the property situation? Has there been a search? Has there been a seizure? Does it have to do with papers and effects? Is it reasonable? So that's, that's a third party that people don't think about, uh, not, the third, not the third party doctrine. That's another party that does law, line drawing, us and the people with whom we contract. Uh, but, you know, watching the oral arguments in this case, one of the things that was interesting, I think, to a lot of observers was, I, so Justice Sotomayor has a reputation for being pretty hawkish on the Fourth Amendment, and, and, and she lived up to that reputation in the oral argument. Uh, but Justice Gorsuch came out very strongly, um, uh, I think, on Carpenter's side. Um, and on the ACLU side, and he and his and he was raised questions about property, property rights and property rights in this kind of information. Um, just to the to the anyone on the panel who wants to take it, I mean, what did what did and also there was an interesting. I thought Justice Alito um, kind of went after Gorsuch and tried to 
tried to put a put a you know kind of put a lid on it. Um, so anyone on the panel, what did you make of Gorsuch's questions, um, and you know what is what might that mean for the case? Well, what was interesting is so there's the provision of law, I guess, Section 222, which uh, limits the ability of the uh, cell phone providers to uh, uh, give out this information, uh, though it makes an exception for law enforcement. And the way that the ACLU tried to take advantage of that was to say that gives us a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. Well, Justice Gorsuch had its own twist on it. He said, put, put aside reasonable expectation of privacy, it gives us a property right in that information. Um, and I think um, that was a little bit of a surprise to the government lawyer arguing it because, again, because of the different way it was used, um, there was a little bit of a back and forth. And then he said Justice Alito uh, came to um, uh, try to help out. And this is actually the provision I have quoted here. So this is Justice Alito saying, I was trying to think of an example of a situation in which a person has a property right and information that the person doesn't ask a third party to create. The person can't force the third party to create it or gather it. The person can't prevent the company from gathering it. The person can't force the company to destroy it. The person can't prevent the company from destroying it. And according to petitioner, the customer doesn't even have the right to get the information. So it was a very interesting battle. I think folks who sort of view the um, sort of the conservatives on the court as a monolith were in for a rude awakening. Um, but it, it was, um, it seemed a, a bit of a stretch to say that the case should be decided based on the existence of this congressionally created property right. There's certainly a privacy interest created, but, and maybe there is a bundle among the bundle of sticks created, but whether there's a genuine property right such that it's akin to searching through my property in my house, um, I think I'd be surprised if uh, any justice other than Justice Gorsuch perhaps uh, ended up agreeing with that. I suspect that uh, Justice Sotomayor might go along with Justice Gorsuch on, on the question, but it was fascinating at that, that and other parts of the colloquy. Uh, and there, I think I even saw eye darts going back and forth between Alito and Gorsuch, <laughs> who are uh, seated opposite one another. Um, Congress created, in, in Section 222 of the Communications Act, uh, a, a, provision, a provision called Customer Proprietary Network Information. Actually used the, the word proprietary. Somebody owns that. There's actually debate about whether that's owned by the the, uh, the the telecom firm or owned by the customer. But I think the the consensus was that it's owned by owned by the customer. Justice Gorsuch also looked for common law. He asked about is there is there a case out there where uh, there's a conversion claim about data that is sitting with a telecom provider or other other provider. I winced because I didn't provide him any of that information in the in the amicus brief that I that I gave to the court. But uh, uh, it was I was gratified that that conversation was happening. I could see a, a breakdown on the court, much similar to the breakdown in uh, in Jones, where uh, I'm optimistic, where they all came to the same conclusion but differed as to how to decide. Uh, Justice Scalia uh, writing for a bare majority, uh, with Sotomayor being the swing vote used uh, what I argue are sort of property rights, recognizing that attaching a, a GPS device to a car is a property invasion, though he didn't say so precisely. And uh, Alito, leading up the concurrence, disagreeing strongly with that rationale uh, and saying, no, this is, we're going to use the reasonable expectation of privacy rationale. I can, see it, I can see it breaking down exactly the same way and Justice Alito being just as derisive, if not more, about the contract argument toward maybe a Justice Gorsuch if he were to, if he were to write the opinion. Although one other, um, and I, I think this is actually another avenue that you might have sort of a agreement between Sotomayor's view and Gorsuch um, that he brought up was um, 
this arguments about writs of assistance and what, what it seemed to be on that. I mean, I kind of got the sense that Gorsuch was grasping for an idea of saying, how, how can I say that the founders clearly had this view about cell phones and cell phone tracking in the 1780s? Um, I mean, his point there about writs of assistance, I mean, clearly you could not apply that universally. That would invalidate all subpoenas if, you know, unlawful writs of assistance that the founders wanted to get rid of um, applied across the board to third-party data. But what seemed to be the underlying concern there was this idea of, well, the founders were ultimately concerned with government having search authorities that were too broad, too powerful, that didn't let us have a prosperous democratic society. And I think, you know, potentially he, he might start to lean towards looking at this idea of unreasonable search and seizure, not, not in the vein of the reasonable expectation of privacy that we so often look to, but what is the reasonable limits on government power that are obtained through its search and surveillance capabilities? And this was the, the foundation of uh, Justice Sotomayor's, I think, quite brilliant concurrence in Jones was saying, at some point, the sheer sensitivity of data that the government, personal data that the government sucks up, and she gives a, a broad list of how location data can provide the most intimate information about you. At some point when the government can do that so much to so many people at such a low cost so easily, it, it is fundamentally incompatible with democratic society. I could see um, the line that Justice Gorsuch was focusing on of saying, what about what the founders thoughts about risk of assistance, how they made a democratic society impossible, leading him to say, yeah, ultimately we're, we're not, this is not literally the same situation, but is the same underlying circumstances that the founders wanted to avoid the government having surveillance tools that simply overrode the capacity for democracy and how powerful they were, and that's what we have here, so that's why we have to put a limit on it. Anything, you want to add anything to that? Or? Well, I, I think this conversation also highlights just how hard people are trying to work to make this an exception as opposed to just saying, maybe we got it wrong 40 years ago. And I, I would say I would actually be comfortable with that. Instead of trying to say, well, the location is different from the, you know, and say, maybe we need to rethink this. We have very different facts and circumstances now, and maybe we should start over, right? Um, and think about what should sincerely be protected. Um, and I almost think that that might be a way forward, too, instead of trying to draw a line on time, which I think a lot of people keep trying to think of. Well, maybe it's not all location records, right? This is, uh, maybe it's 24 hours should be the line. Um, maybe we should say all of them are protected, right? Or maybe we say, actually, you know, you can check fact of for a location for a very specific thing, but otherwise, you have to go get the warrant. Um, we're going to have to rip the Band-Aid off legally on these sorts of privacy issues and technology issues at some point. Um, maybe now is the time not to bend ourselves in pretzels to avoid doing that. The, uh, I think the law enforcement argument is that, you know, that the ability to get information early on that's not at the uh, probable cause warrant standard early in an investigation that's very valuable. You can look at bank records. You can maybe someone's involved in terrorism and drugs or some kind of serious crime, and that that's a, that's a useful tool. Um, and so it, what does it mean if the third-party doctrine is, is out the window? Is, do you want to just address that? Well, so there's throwing out the third-party doctrine altogether, and there's losing this case. And I should say, um, it certainly appears, as, as far as anyone could tell, you know, could tell watching the argument, is that Carpenter is going to prevail, the government's going to lose, and the court is going to say that this was a search which required a warrant. Um, then the question is, what rule do they come up with, and do they 
go beyond sell-side information, and if it sticks with sell-side information, what kind of lines do they draw? Um, but were they to go f further uh, and actually call into question uh, the third-party doctrine, yeah, it would um, have quite significant consequences. I was um, talking to a uh, prosecutor a few weeks ago, sort of asking about this, and she said, yeah, I just, um, you know, there's a, there's a case where uh, there's a kidnapping, and they get information from, a, from someone who says, so-and-so uh, was involved in the, was, was the one who did it. But, you know, it's not good enough to really get a warrant. I mean, it's still, you know, we don't have quite enough faith in this person. But based on that, wouldn't it be great to get sales on information from that person to see if that person was in the vicinity of where the person was kidnapped from for the few hours surrounding when um, uh, the kidnapping took place? Uh, to think it would certainly, and that's just one of, I'm sure, a thousand examples of where you don't have enough, you don't have probable cause, yet it's just part of that process of building a case. And again, it's, it's not exceptional. It really is routine in the way you build a case is to start getting bank records and the like. Um, that doesn't mean that um, the government should win the Carpenter case. I mean, 127 days of cell site information is a heck of a lot. Uh, and we all recognize that technology is getting better. And that's part of the challenge of deciding a case in 2017 based on 2010 technology. The challenge for the court to write something that resolves that case without saying something that makes it harder to do what they think is the right thing with the new technology. Um, but so I do think it would have some serious consequences if they went as far as uh, Michelle was saying. Yeah, and I think even if you go back to the more commonsensical public-private distinction like Jim was talking about, um, in this case, you could still imagine there would still be a lot of records and evidence that the government could collect, right? Um, they robbed eight stores. The irony was that they were uh, stealing actual cell phones. That was what was being robbed, right? Um, but you can imagine, let's say, T-Mobile has, like, um, security cameras inside, right? Maybe there was a bank ATM with cameras outside. Maybe there are speed cameras. Maybe there, are, there was a police officer driving by checking license plates. You have witnesses. Um, and in this case, you even had one of his co-conspirators actually finger him, right? So there are so many ways to collect information, even if we you know, dialed back the third-party doctrine altogether, if we really did the public-private uh, and more traditional witness testimony, there's still a wealth of information out there, right? And ultimately, you still can get it. You just have a different level of showing. I think also that this is the type of thing that, you know, that my concern about it'll make it harder for law enforcement is the sort of thing we would see in any context for something that you know, is viewed as intimately private if law enforcement has some point that has access to it. So in a slightly different realm, the debate about uh, email privacy, um, for years we've been trying to get Congress over the finish line to pass a law that says under all circumstances uh, the government needs a warrant for your emails. There's a law that was passed in 1986 that says generally they do, but there's a loophole in it. And so we've been trying to get that loophole closed. Um, civil agencies, especially the SEC, that have previously tried to use subpoenas to get email content, you know, they try the same thing and say, how could we conduct, you know, it's going to make our investigation so much harder if we have to actually get a warrant to read your private emails. Um, and then, you know, I imagine if we had more broadly, if law enforcement was engaged in the practice of taking emails at a subpoena level and it hadn't been overruled by the Supreme Court, you would take the argument of, well, we use these things and it's going to make it much harder for us. I, I'm sure to some degree that's true, 
But I think the less, the more important question then, does this make it easier or harder or have some impact is, is the higher level of difficulty at that stage of the investigation justified based on the balance of civil liberties? And I think in this case it is. Dan's comments especially inspire me to, to highlight uh, some of the some of the oral argument that make my case a hard one uh, for me to support, which is which is slicing and dicing the information a different way. What if you've got six bank robberies across the city or across the state, and you could get a tower dump from each of those locations for the 45 minutes or an hour around when the when the robbery happened, and you find that one or two cell phone numbers appear at all those locations at all those times. That's pretty cool. Uh, and I've got a, I, that, that makes me have a problem with my theory that that information is perfectly locked down by contract. The only solution I can think of, I don't really want a lot of carve-outs and exceptions to a rule. The thing I want is amendment to my contract that says, you know what, under these circumstances, do your, do your tower dumps so that the bad guys can be caught. That's not going to reveal a lot about me uh, that they go and, and, and do those tower dumps. So it's a, but but that is a hard that is a hard case for the 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 carpenter side is the the real utility of this data for good law enforcement. I, I should say that there's a, another side of the equation that is worth bearing in mind. I know it's one Professor Kerr talks about sometimes, which is the new technology also makes it much facilitates the crimes themselves. It is much easier to do a conspiracy to set up a bank robbery when you're able to communicate through texts and cell phones than it was in the old days when you had to meet together and maybe be more, e in a way that might be more easy for the police to observe. Uh, I'm sure money laundering and all sorts of financial crimes are much easier to commit given the technology that exists today. So, to, so it's just worth bearing in mind the balance and that uh, to the extent um, the government is totally restricted from applying existing tools to new technologies while, of course, the criminals use the new technologies, it could create some, uh, some problems. One, um, one, one technical question, a technical legal question that I, I probably should have brought up earlier is we've been talking about getting this information without a warrant. But under the Stored Communications Act, there, it, it's the, the, uh, the law enforcement does need to get a court order. Um, so could just, just, I mean, not everyone understands the difference between these things. Could we just get a quick explanation of what the difference is between it's the 2703D order uh, versus, uh, versus a, a probable cause search warrant? Right. The probable cause search warrant, um, you go before the magistrate and probable cause, um, uh, a high standard. For the um, Stored Communications Act warrant, um, you do have to go before the neutral magistrate, but you have to, and you have to show articulable, uh, specific facts establishing reasonable grounds to believe that the requested records are relevant to an ongoing criminal investigation. So the key really is that gap between reasonable grounds to believe and probable cause. Uh, now, what's interesting is that in the Carpenter case itself, they probably had probable cause, but they didn't need to show it in their warrant. Um, but, you know, it's a, there's a fair gap between the two. So the, 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 the standard under the Stored Communications Act, that's a, that's a lower hurdle to clear, yes. just, to, just to put it in those terms. Yes. Um, uh, we're, we're, getting, we're, get, we're getting to the point where I want to open this up to questions, but before, because I'm sure a lot of you are interested in this case and, and want to query the panel, but before we do so, I thought I just would put it to each panelist. 
Um, I realize, you know, predicting the outcomes of these cases based on oral arguments and everything else is always dangerous, so you don't have to do that. But just, what, do you, what if you want to answer that, what do you think the court's going to do? But then more importantly, what, what do you want the court to do? If you could write the opinion, what, what would it say? And I guess, so, Diana, move down. Wow, what the court's going to do is uh, maybe easier. I th it certainly appeared for all I could see at the argument that, that um, Carpenter's going to prevail um, probably... 7-2 um, or 6-3, Justice Thomas um, didn't ask questions, and he's one who goes back and forth on Fourth Amendment cases. He, um, it's one of the rare areas of the law where he's something of a swing vote. So I'm not sure which way he will go, but um, I, th I think there will be a majority of five who um, rule based on reasonable expectation of privacy with perhaps Gorsuch and perhaps Justice Thomas and who knows, maybe a few on um, property, but I suspect, property-based theory, but I suspect there'll be a majority um, on reasonable expectation of privacy, then the real question is where they draw the line. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, interestingly, was pushing back. The ACLU you know, attorney said, you know, we'll give you a day. You can get 24 hours to cell phone records. And Chief Justice Roberts said, why, you said, why 24 hours? Why anything? Um, so uh, it, I really have no idea between zero, you, know, you just can't get them, 24 hours, um, a few hours surrounding each crime or something different. Um, I guess I feel obligated to say that if I were writing the opinion, I guess I would adopt the government's position and say that um, there is a content, non-content distinction. This is non-content, and so under the existing doctrine, which um, uh, is consistent with hundreds of years of practice, um, should be preserved. And if Congress uh, thinks the Stored Communications Act isn't protective enough, it can, it can and should uh, amend it. Um, well, I guess I won't predict what will happen. Uh, <clears throat> I, I would say what I would like to see, though, is them to more squarely take on the third-party doctrine to say um, we do not mean for 40 years of precedent to develop to say that people no longer have any privacy in anything they share with another person. Um, that is untenable in our society and undercuts the purpose of the Fourth Amendment. And so we are going to start looking at categories of information individually and decide whether they should fall under the Fourth Amendment or not. And in this case, we categorically say location is all the time, and there is no time limit test. Um, I, I also think that Carpenter will likely prevail 7-2 or 6-3. I'll knock wood on that. Um, I, I definitely agree with Michelle that it would be great to to see the court try to tackle with some of the inadequacies of the third party doctrine for modern society move past it. But for me, what I would most like to see for issues of location privacy is the court try to take it beyond the questions of what about data, location data held by a third party and have a more holistic view of location data gathered in a exceptionally easy way. So something, to say, something along the lines of saying, if this data is gathered in a way far beyond human capacity, such as you know, a, a individual cop on a foot tail or a car tail, so that we could address not just uh, what happens when these location records are being held by a third party, but what about stingrays that cops operate? What about tracking by facial recognition? These new technologies that are already starting to be rolled out that don't implicate um, what's held by a third party. I would, I would hope that the court could um, try to make a distinction based on sort of that ability to use techniques that go far beyond human power to track location. Nine to nothing in Carpenter's favor as to result. 
uh, very similar to Jones, a division on the rationale. Uh, I worry that uh, elite, the Alito side or the reasonable expectation rationale will get the majority. Uh, I, it is a question of Gorsuch's uh, political skills on the court, how many people he brings along to his point of view. And there are a couple of wild cards. It could be that uh, Chief Justice Roberts takes the case and writes it similar to the way he, does, he did Riley. I, too, noted that, that he referred to the 24-hour rule offered up by, the, uh, by Carpenter's counsel as an exception. Uh, he didn't say exception to what, but I think it was an exception to the warrant requirement. So his view is maybe similar to, to Riley, get a warrant. Uh, if he takes it, the, the, he may not reveal the rationale all that well, as, as was the case in Riley. The other wild card is what they do with third-party doctrine cases like Smith versus Maryland and, uh, and the Miller case uh, dealing with bank records. Alito asked at the, at the outset, what do you want us to do with these things? And I think he was being genuine in that those, uh, those cases are uh, hopefully in the guillotine. <laughs> all right. Um, before I turn to the audience, any, anyone on the panel have anything to add before, uh, before you hear from, hear from the people? All right. I believe there are uh, okay. So there are there are several people with microphones on on either side. Um, just a few things. You've you've all heard this before, but please hear it now. Um, ask your question in the form of a question. With that, yes. Uh, there's a there's a hand in the in the back. Well, in the back corner. I saw that hand first. So there at the top. Um, hi, I'm Gus Alzona. Um, I have a question for um, uh, each of the panelists. Uh, in your in your personal opinion, um, what do you think the impact would be, either positive or negative, on the issues you discussed today concerning the uh, uh, proposals um, regarding net neutra net neutrality? Okay. Who wants to uh, go first? No impact on the on these issues. None. Maybe at the most abstract level, uh, net neutrality regulation puts the government in closer control over our communications networks. If you had a, uh, a pure, uh, pure market in, in uh, telecommunications where uh, no telecom provider had to answer to a governmental authority, they might argue more strongly for our privacy rights vis-a-vis -vis government. But that's a pretty abstract uh, uh, argument. So I think there's effectively no, uh, no real impact of the net neutrality debate on these issues. It's my personal and professional opinion. Yeah, I, I think sort of the, the closest time might be if we remove net neutrality um, rules and companies have that incentive to collect your web browsing activities because of what sites, you know, maybe have higher payments or throttling to visit. Um, that that's another type of sensitive data held by a third party, but that's something they already hold anyway because of all the data mining that goes along with checking your web activity. That's another really important third party um, privacy related issue, but I, I don't think net neutrality one way or another will, will impact how that plays out in the future. I'll pass. Pass. Yeah. All right, two passes. Okay, um, on that side in the, in the back.
Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Jordan Rubin. I'm a reporter with Bloomberg Law. My question relates to the role of statutes in the constitutional analysis here, if any, and I think it might cut against both sides of the argument. So it might have been, I think, Justice Kagan at the argument who pointed out that the Stored Communications Act you know, could be gone tomorrow, hypothetically, uh, whether or not she is the one who said it. That's, that technically is the case. Uh, at the same time, going to what Justice Gorsuch said in relying on a property-based right in a statute, that could technically be gone tomorrow as well. And so I'm wondering, especially if you're looking to the possibility of Gorsuch's potential property-based theory based in a statute, but at the same time a statute then being able to be gone tomorrow, what effect do you think that could have in the outcome and the way the opinion will actually be crafted in this case? I think the, the, the question is excellent and, and points out a, maybe a weakness for, for both sides in relying on statute. Yeah, the, the Stored Communications Act standard could go away. Uh, it's often said in Fourth Amendment cases by justices, well, we should leave this to the courts, shouldn't we? Excuse me? Constitutional rights being, uh, rather, being, we should leave this to Congress. Constitutional rights being left to Congress? No, thank you. Uh, it's a counter-majoritarian document, the Constitution. So yes, uh, SCA might go away. Likewise, uh, Justice Gorsuch kind of retreated. I think he, uh, if I recall correctly, he first asked about conversion claims dealing with, with uh, inf personal information in digital form. Common law, not statute. Uh, and, and common law that's, that's spread out among, among 50 states, so it's not something that, uh, that a single majority could get a hold of and, and get rid of. Uh, then, as, sort of, as a sort of retreat, he went to Section 222 of the Communications Act, which uh, arguably creates a, a property right in the behalf of customers. So the, his preference seemed to be for, for recognizing common law property right. Maybe there might be a, a historical argument that common law property rights would pertain vis-a-vis -vis statute, but it's, a, it's an excellent, uh, well-founded observation and question. Other answers? Yeah. I, I think from the government's perspective, the existence of the statute is in a sense irrelevant to whether it is a Fourth Amendment search or not. But to the extent the government position is in part, this is really a, a very delicate line drawing issue. And that, you know, in general, third party subpoenas of, you know, those who, you know, of customer information is permissible and we have a specific concern and lines have to be drawn. That's for Congress to do. And hey, look, they already did it to an extent in this George Communications Act they could refine it as needed. So again, I don't think the government would say it resolves it, but I think it's a helpful atmospheric, the fact that the short communications is out there and deals with it to an extent. Any other uh, responses? Okay, um, in, in the front, uh, right there. Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. I wanted to ask you to elaborate a little bit on the implications of even considering the duration, the timeline of the data to be turned over on the question. Uh, wouldn't you think that those, any justice who would say that 24 hours or any other line uh, makes a distinction is claiming that the short timeline is a benefit, has a greater benefit for the law enforcement purposes of the search as opposed to the undesirable consequences of a broad net being cast beyond that. And anyone who would say, and, and if, they, if that's true, isn't the consequence that some people, sh some justices might say that the, um, that's a line that should be driven not by a presumption 
but by a warrant, that you go to a court and you get a warrant and let the court decide 24 hours, a week, a month, a year, whatever. I think that was very much Chief Justice Roberts' question um, was very much, uh, if there are issues of particularity, well, that's, how, as you said, that you use that for warrant. The issue of how long is too long really, I think, was a, a focus in the Jones case. Because, you know, the government's argue, you know, the Jones case, as we talked about, is where the GPS was put under the car. Uh, but the car's going out in the public, and, you know, you're allowed to be observed when you're out in the public. And so the government argument was, well, if you're out in the public being observed, then you're not losing any privacy you otherwise had. And the response was, well, we expect to be viewed in the public, maybe, you know, followed for an hour or, you know, in a real serious investigation for a couple of days. But nobody expects to be followed for, what was it, 27 days in Jones? A very long time. Uh, and so, and I think the Alito concurring opinion in Jones sort of adopted what some have called the mosaic theory that, well, even an activity that is okay when it's done for a very short period of time, government surveillance just crosses a line when it's for so long that it's inconceivable that that would have happened, could have been done absent the technology. So I think that's the reasoning of why. I mean, the government, you know, in terms of enforcement ability, I guess the more is the better in terms of effectiveness. But, you know, uh, uh, you know the court seems to, at least in some contexts, want to say too much, you know, is uh, at a certain point, you, you know, pass the limit. Any? Yeah. My, my implicate, my thoughts, I, I'm more inclined to hope that the court would say that for any period of time, even if it's just a single blip, um, triggers a warrant requirement because, you know, it, it can be a blip of one second or one hour or one day um, and yet still reveal highly sensitive information about an individual that can be very detrimental if we don't set out high standards for this. If the government, you know, all they need to see is that you were at that political protest for one second to start stockpiling those types of information and, you know, potentially bring us back into the days of COINTELPRO. But I, th I think the concern for the justices was less, oh, what's reasonable a day or an hour and that, and more if, if we set this any single moment of location data, then where does that go beyond this? Does any time any record implicates your location when you buy something at a store, when you, um, you know, swipe through the subway, when you pass a, a traffic cam, that gets your information, your location for a single second. Do those all require a warrant now? Um, maybe a way that the court could deal with that is to account for the fact that those are individualized, discrete um, aspects of your location, whereas if you're pulling location from a cell phone, you're potentially pulling it pretty much at any time. I have my cell phone with me literally 24 hours a day. I'm sure for many people it's the same. So um, maybe the way there to have it go to not applying a time limit is to say, well, are we talking about um, location tracking mechanisms that could track your location no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, or are we looking at a specific uh, discrete one-time only place or moment? And I think that's what makes the most sense. When, when they talked about 24 hours, that was less about how long you should allow tracking with a warrant and more to when do you cross the line when a warrant is needed at all. It was, again, sort of this effort to allow them some limited access in a reasonable way. Um, but I think the more workable way is to say just, yeah, when you have the actual incident or some element of the crime and you need to establish fact of 
were they at this place at the time, you can get that information. Because then even if you have 24 hours, you're starting to venture into the mosaic theory of we have no reason to believe anything criminal happened in here. We're just hoping we can either find a pattern or um, some new information we haven't thought of. So essentially the opposite of a suspicion-based program, right? And allowing the collection and the um, conclusions later. I, I saw another hand in the front. Uh, yeah, you're right there. Just this is the final question. Okay, this is the, this is the final question, everybody. Yeah, Bill Klein, I'm a retired uh, military physician. I'm really curious about the issue of who owns the data on all of this. Of course, we're not talking about all the commercial side, which is I'm more worried about that than the government, frankly. But if a person owns the data, and basically then they would be licensing it to all these other people to use it in various ways, some sort of a contract would be written. But that should mean that if I want to call Google or call the local police department, say, give me a download in plain English about all the data you have on me, and with PD, it'd be a big PDF, but they could do it technically these days. If they knew they could do that, I think the word transparency would come into effect, and I wouldn't feel a bit worried if I had the right to do that, knowing that I wouldn't bother, but somebody that was more involved in all the civil liberties issues would be doing that, and it would keep people honest on the other side. I'm wondering about the, the property ownership of the data about a person, unless there's some special case like criminal investigation or the, some of the things you've been talking about. But just in general, shouldn't I own all the data that exists on me and let people use it versus say, Google, which I'm sure they would claim they own the data on me, or my military medical record. I'm a retired doctor. I don't have access to my total military record to get lab tests, for instance, over the phone call if I want to. They say it belongs to them. So that issue of ownership, I think, is really key to all this. There's a, there's a book published maybe 20 or could be 25 years ago now called Who Owns Information? And someone handed that to me, and reading it, I think, spurred my interest in these types of questions. It's very difficult to, to discern who owns information. And in this, in this case, I argued uh, somewhat counterintuitively that though telecom providers have possession, we own a lot of the rights to control, to dispose of, and so on and so forth. It came up in oral argument that, that Section 22 of the Communications Act gives people the right to access this information. I think that that law is honored in the breach. Nobody ever is able to call up their telecom provider and get a copy of the data. So you might have a customer service problem there that's of immense proportions. But uh, who owns information is a very key question, and I appreciate it. Other uh, responses? I would say I'm more domestically focused, but you could look into something called the GDPR, which is how Europe is trying to regulate information there. Um, and they have a much more ownership vision of how information is collected and accessed. And for example, that's why you can actually now go to your Facebook page and say, download everything, and it will give you a record of pretty much everything Facebook has on you. So it may be that we see some companies who are trying to comply with laws elsewhere that are more aggressive will be offering that in the United States also. Yeah, so I, I, I am uh, slightly concerned. I, mean, I, I do hope that the courts looking at this, they, that they won't follow um, what I think was somewhat of a mistake in Jones and sort of instead of looking at the impact of the issues saying let's focus on this you know attachment touching of a person's property idea and in this case sort of look at who owns this data who um, who controls it who has access to it what's our relationship with third parties and and looks more towards the broad impact because I mean we are, we are already rapidly moving towards the point where um, this types of sensitive information, Ownership is not going to be able to be something that protects us. Um, 
I mean, there was a report out of BBC just uh, a couple of days ago. They had a reporter basically go to a city in China that's installing mass facial recognition combined with CCTVs. They could locate him at anywhere within the city he was in within a matter of minutes. Now, let's say we start to deploy technology like that and get better. I'm incredibly worried about you know a hypothetical where the government can say, let's find that reporter and let's look at a hundred list of White House staffers who we think might be leaking information and see if they were ever near each other over the course of the last two weeks with our network of camera and facial recognitions. Um, you know, you can't say, wait, I own you know my privacy of my status as walking around on the street and who I may or may not have been near. So I mean, this might be a way to resolve this case right now, but I don't think it's going to be able to resolve the problem that we're ultimately facing, which is government be able to stockpile too much sensitive information too easily in the future. Okay, well, um, thank you uh, to all of the panel for a great conversation today. Thank you all for your attention and for your great questions.